From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Uh, welcome to our podcast, what everyone. What is podcasting? Is podcasting? Uh, well, podcasting is, well, it's like a new form of radio. It's radio on your iPod? ReSound is a remix of documentaries, music, found sound, sound bites, and other oral flotsam and jetsam we find while trolling through the international airwaves and the internet. One of the places we troll these days is the land of pod. There are zillions of podcasts out there, mostly because they're easy to make, easy to download, and have the potential to reach millions of people. And the difference between these podcasts and any old sound you can pull off the net is that these come to you. Once you subscribe, you could be in a coma, and a podcast you love will quietly fly through the internet to your computer or MP3 player, ready and waiting for you when you wake up. You don't need a station, a tower, or even a studio, for God's sakes. All you need is a halfway decent computer and a microphone. And all this access to access, sound editing, interviewing, pontificating, broadcasting, has yielded a wide range of results. Podcast. First, of course, you have your podcasts that are imitations of commercial and public radio, as in, I want to sound like them. Then you have your quick and dirty podcasts, as in, hey, I could put my pet ferret on the air. Then there are the experiments, emerging formats that don't really fit into the old mold of radio show, square pegs, round holes, new technology, and even newer ideas. Today on ReSound, podcasts. Oh, sure, the printing press made everyone a reader, and the portable computer made everyone a publisher. But now, everyone can be one of us. Yikes. Stay with us. Our first podcast today is a perfect example of a form that couldn't air on a traditional public radio show, where it would have to be a four-minute story that starts with a little sound, a narrator describing a scene, a few cuts from an interview, and boom, you're done. But this isn't the kind of work Sue Mel finds most satisfying. She'd rather play with the possibilities in this new medium. Her podcast is called Unintended Detours. It's a meandering kind of story, but it meanders with a purpose, a good one. Here is Unintended Detours by Sue Mel. You're listening to the podcast Unintended Detours. This is episode one, Shelf Life. to the forex market. Jesus, Beth and Wiley. There's no place like home.
there's an open package of bacon that's going rancid in Natalie's fridge. She knows that this and the week-old dirty dishes from their last breakfast have to go, but watches hour after hour of mind-numbing television instead. The bacon has developed a life of its own. It moves from front to back, shuffles around from shelf to shelf. It started to turn gray, but still remains. It's one o'clock in the morning, and Natalie wants to talk to the bacon. Maybe, together, they could sort out all the difficult things, the ones she couldn't seem to fix with the lanky bass player from Kentucky. As she opens the refrigerator door, she leans away and braces for any smell. She loves this package of bacon. This handful of fatty slices and greasy plastic are all that's left. She's not going to Kentucky, and she doesn't want him here, in her apartment, or even really in New York. The phone calls will lessen and eventually fade. Other meals, other men, will fill this place. And eggs fried up in bacon grease will be the only really good thing she remembers. Tonight, she'll wash the dishes. Tomorrow, she'll try to throw away the bacon. Sawing or doing one of these. Hang on. Are you in the uh, master power levels? How long are you going to give him? Well, I didn't put an expiration date on the sentiment, but I figure it's got the shelf life of a dairy product. It's going to start to curdle in about a week. What made you decide to get a facelift? realize it, but your body is like a machine. Instead of plastic and metal, its parts are made of flesh and bone. In place of motors and wires, it has muscles and blood vessels. Though human bodies come in different shapes and sizes, they all work pretty much the same. So brain death, there, there are two types of death, brain death and cardiac death. And most people are familiar with cardiac death. That means that the heart has stopped beating and um, the things that happen next, like your body becomes cold and, and, and you start to look different, happen immediately. Brain death is the second type of death. And brain death means that all brain function has ceased. Usually brain death occurs in a hospital room where the ventilator is still, uh, is still functioning and, and forcing oxygen into your body. So that allows for the heart to continue beating and for all organs to continue functioning. However, the brain has ceased, and that is considered a legal declaration of death.
When people consider organ donation, I believe that they are doing or they're considering this option for selfless reasons, mostly. I think most people know that or have made a mission in life to be good. And this is the perfect way. I mean, this is, this is, organ donation is probably the biggest gift that one human being could give to another human being. Other families have said that the fact that their loved one's organs will continue living in someone else gives them some comfort. Although we hesitate to, to even say that they continue li living, um, just because it's, it, it can bring some emotional conflict later. A prayer for the strife. I can't really remember where I got my first set of shelves. The only thing I'm sure of is that I got those shelves for free, from some job, or maybe even off the street. They were those gray metal ones that looked like something that came out of an erector set. Five easily dented shelves that you'd attach to metal struts with nuts and bolts. Easy breezy cover girl, except for the little challenge of lining them up to their corresponding holes. Then, you'd slap this flimsy, X-shaped brace across the back to square the whole thing off, but they'd still be all rickety and unstable until you loaded them up with books. And even then, they had a propensity for leaning. But they were easy to take apart and reassemble, and that, in those days, was good. Instant furniture, instant home. The truth is, I don't reread books all that often. Every once in a while, I will be dusting or cleaning shelves or something like that, and I'll say, wow, you know, I'd really like to go back to that one. Or I'll be at a time in life that will remind me of something from one of my favorite books, and I'll say, you know what, it would make good sense to reread this now. Very, very few books make that cut. If I look at my shelves the way you'd look at, like, a professional sports team, like, the books I read, those are the major leagues. The ones I don't, those are the minor leagues, and they usually get traded or drafted or I get rid of them. And then the ones I reread, that's the Hall of Fame. I, I sometimes look at the stuff from my first book and say, God, how young and idealistic and foolish I was when I did that. But, you know, you can't, you can't really say that about something you devoted three years of your life to. Next came the era of laminate. I still have some of those. Faux wood finish ones from Office Depot and some white ones from Ikea. Some of them have shelves that have sagged into delirious smiles. Cheap pressed wood covered with veneer, apparently no match for the weight of words on paper. I've still got books on those droopy shelves, but I've got them stashed away inside a closet. Books I have no room for, but can't bear to let go. I mean, ideally, my books will be looked at as, as indicators of their time. In thinking about my third and fourth book, I'm on my second one right now, I do think about something that is less sort of attached to contemporary culture, less sort of attached to a particular moment in time. Because I, 
I would like my books to be discussed and related to in a way other than, yeah, that's what I was doing in, you know, in April of 2003 or something like that. Where I live now, in San Francisco, I've got beautiful bay windows that face a tree-lined street and a wide set of French doors between the rooms, but there's hardly any wall space left for bookshelves. I keep my favorites in the built-in Victorian bookcase that lines one wall of what doubles as my living room and bedroom. It's got these charming glass-paneled doors, a chest of drawers, and a fading mirror. But the books sit deep in shadow behind the glass, and I miss seeing their familiar spines. All the books from all the stages of my life. I probably think about my own mortality maybe two, three times a day, maybe more sometimes. And it's more often when I drive. And in this job, I drive a lot. Um, I'd been working with with many families and their tragedies, and and I'd been, I, I found myself extremely emotional and I would only allow myself to cry after I left the families, after I entered my car and drove away from the hospital. But one morning um, I realized that I was preparing for my own death um, because I had been around it every day. And as my husband left to work that morning, he left his sweater on our bed and I picked it up and I put it away because I thought, if he dies on his way to work, I'll have the sweater that I can sleep with and at least smell his scent every night. And, and it seems kind of silly to even think that and almost selfish to think of my husband passing away. But as I was preparing for my own death, I was preparing for the person that was most important in my life's death. And that, at that moment, I realized, you know, it, it, I'm kind of limiting myself if I'm thinking about death all the time. But being prepared, I think, just allows me to deal with, with, or I think that it will allow me to deal with future losses. Families say no to donation because they may still be in denial of their loved one's death. Organ donation is so final. If you agree to organ donation, there's absolutely no way that their loved one is coming back. Unintended Detours by Sue Mel. For a link to her podcast so that you too can eagerly await episode number two, go to our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Allora, eccomi qua a registrare il mio primo podcast. Benvenuto all'inizio di questa nuova esperienza chiamata Podcast. Hola a todos, Jorge Martos, eh, con il microfono che sta parlando ora mismo. Добро пожаловать, дорогие студенты. Вы слушаете радиопередачу Producer Benjamin Walker has enjoyed plenty of success in what we think of as traditional public radio. But when podcasting first presented itself as a new way to communicate to large numbers of people, he was all over it. 
In fact, his was one of the very first public radio podcasts available. He saw an opportunity to do exactly what he wanted, editors and managers be damned. And as you'll see, when Benjamin Walker does what he wants, something interesting and provocative results. In fact, usually his work is so provocative, we can't air it. The very reason we chose this episode is because it doesn't talk about and Here is Theory of Everything. Dear IRS, the following is an audio file of my 2005 federal individual tax return. I am using this audio file method even though I could not find it on the official irs.gov website, but surely it's an option. I imagine a popular one being that so many American men and women have had their arms and hands blown off this past year while serving in Iraq. And while I commend you for providing such a useful service to our combat veterans who lack the physical capacity to fill out a tax return, I am also a bit peeved at how impossible it was for a civilian like myself to locate said service. Which is why I am improvising my own version of the 2005 federal audio filing. I trust this will not be a problem. In fact, the way I see it, there's an obvious loophole. For while I did not serve overseas in the war on terror, or on the ground for that matter, I am suffering combat fatigue and post-traumatic stress syndrome from said war. Yes, it's been a rough year. Half-wits in the White House insisting that the flowers of democracy are soon to be in full desert bloom, all the while Iraq steadily descends into civil war. <laughs> but anyways, let's get started. Filing status. Single. Solitary. Alone. Obviously, my singular status means that I will be writing off my six-year relationship, which came to a crashing end this past year. And yes, while I was the one who left, it by no means dampens the pain, anger, guilt, remorse, frustration, regret, shame, humiliation, and ignominy I am now left with. In fact, the only comfort I take is that I get to write it all off, along with all the love, companionship, affection, care, and camaraderie I no longer possess. I don't want to bore you with the details, but six years is a long time, more than enough time to build up a collective history, a library of shared experiences, a foundation of common cause, a familiarity that bred not just contempt, but compassion and understanding as well. But at least I can write it all off. It's good to know that six years of my life, and for that matter, six years of her life, 12 years total, yes, it's extremely gratifying to know that rather than being totally wasted, these 12 years can instead be written off. With a single stroke, move from one side of the balance sheet to the other. So, with that sorted out, let's move on to my deductions. There are quite a lot of them. First of all, the nature of my work requires a certain mental toughness. 
But the depression and the despair of this past year, see above under write-off, left me for the most part totally incapacitated. Much effort and capital was thus expended in the hope of achieving some basic mental functioning. Thousands and thousands of dollars were spent on intoxicants in women. In many instances, double bills. Of course, nothing from either of these categories ever helped, which is why I believe they meet the necessary requirements to be considered allowable deductions. Failed business expenses. I will agree that the numbers in the intoxicant column do make it seem that I was up in excess of 365 fiscal calendar days, but understand that yours truly was living it up on the top shelf. Sure, there was an occasional 12-pack of Bud Light or a bottle of Old Crow, but for the most part, it was cases and cases of Kettle One, Knob Creek, and Chateau Margot. A three-day bender done up in this style is equivalent to about a 15-day bender in cheap booze dollars. There were also other types of intoxicants consumed over the past fiscal year. I've listed them in the appropriate other category and used their estimated street value to calculate the total cost. And while I understand that this deduction might seem controversial, let me assure you that it's all on the up and up. Or as President Ronald Reagan once said in 1987 regarding his role in the Iran-Contra affair, my heart and my best intentions tell me it's true, even if the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. The figure entered in on line C is the amount of money I blew during the last fiscal year on carousing. Obviously, the breakdown of my relationship freed me up to pursue other women, which I did with full gusto. Mostly 23-year-olds, which are more expensive than the older models, but totally worth it. But in the end, a bevy of 23-year-old beauties turned out to be extremely taxing, mentally, physically, and financially, which is why the figure in column C is so high. However, the subtotal of lines A, B, and C make up only a portion of the total deduction that I am claiming in this audio file. The major expenses I've entered in on line D, these are the artistic expenditures, all the failed attempts at constructing my theory of everything. For example, the other day I was reading on a bench in Union Square Park. There was a woman sitting next to me. She was furiously taking notes in the margins of a book entitled Woman and the Marriage. And on the other side of me, a portly, sensitive fellow clutched a shoebox in which a dying baby bird faintly peeped out its final peeps. The man told me he rescued the bird from the street outside his Brooklyn apartment. He kept calling an animal rescue hotline and holding the phone into the box, shouting, Can't you hear that? Can't you at least tell me what I'm supposed to do? It was a powerful moment, one ripe with connections and purpose. But was I able to transport this drama into my radio program? No, I was not. Obviously, a deduction. And this was by no means an isolated incident. During the past year, I witnessed and recorded many, many amazing things. From all over the world. China, the Caribbean, Eastern Europe, Africa. 
At a bar in Beijing, I spent hours recording Andre, a Russian in the import-export business, a boisterous loudmouth who endlessly professed his distaste for the cuisine and women of China. And when pressed to explain then what exactly he was doing in the country, he answered with a shout, "I love to bargain." Then there was a night out on the town in Tunisia. A couple of local kids took my companions and I to a discotheque, angering the secret police who were charged with keeping us foreigners in town for the UN summit on freedom and information from fraternizing with local residents. When we left the discotheque, the police descended upon our taxis, looking for our guides. And this one guy I was with, this obnoxious New York DJ, oblivious to the danger our new friends were in, turns to me and asks in complete seriousness, "Is this because I'm black?" Then there was a midnight run from Almaty, Kazakhstan, to Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan, through snow-covered mountain passes, with a driver whose only English consisted of the words "danger" and "torture," and the phrase "if they want to, they will make body dumped in snowbank." I also took a road trip across our own glorious land. On this trip, my friend Galib and I listened to and recorded hours and hours of religious radio, most of which was totally beyond the pale. We witnessed calls for the extermination of not only fornicators and homosexuals, but vegetarians and peaceniks who regularly distort the true message of Christ, the Warrior King. Obviously, all of these experiences should have made it into the new and improved theory of everything radio show, and yet not a single one of them did. Which is why I am taking them all as deductions. The sum total of my deductions suggests that I pretty much owe you nothing. In fact, it seems that you owe me everything. Which brings us to the final category of this audio filing: exemption. Obviously, I qualify for a full exemption, and while I am not disputing the fact that my mathematical formulas may stretch the imagination, surely they do less harm than the accounting methods employed by multi-billion-dollar corporations who regularly pay little to nothing, thanks to shady offshore tax shelters. There are no dubious shelters in this filing. In fact, the only shelter I have is made up of old blankets, a bicycle, and a couple hundred books. All seizable assets, to be sure, but in the end, nothing you could use. Although I am struck by the thought that if you took my bicycle to Iraq and drove it around in the desert distributing books and blankets, you would probably produce better results than what you're currently getting with your million-dollar Hummers and assault vehicles. But then again, it being my bicycle and my books and my blankets, I have to beg off. After all, you can surely find the money elsewhere. Perhaps from one of the hundreds of social programs now defunded, or perhaps you could borrow a little money from one of those flush faith-based initiatives. I leave that for you to figure out. After all, I'm exempt. Signed sincerely, Benjamin Walker.
Benjamin Walker from his podcast, Theory of Everything. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. Benjamin Walker and basement-dwelling agoraphobic shut-ins aren't the only ones with a podcast, by the way. We have one, too. You'll love it. It's free. It's easy. Listen wherever you go. To subscribe, visit our website at thirdcoastfestival.org. The computer combines these sounds in accordance with the linguistic rules which govern the English language into connected, intelligible speech. Knowledge developed through such research may be useful in devising new techniques for transmitting speech over communication systems. The Obscure News is a podcast created by Lloyd Broadnax King. Now, Lloyd is a man of many talents. He teaches, plays in three jazz bands, and honestly could talk you or charm you into pretty much anything. The Obscure News, otherwise known as T-O-N, is dedicated to all the news the networks omitted, like weird little anecdotes that are told over the water cooler or between friends. The whole thing is tied together by a steadfast and mysterious host who goes by the name Yolanda, a driving rhythm, and strategic bits of found sound. We asked Lloyd what he was thinking when he started The Obscure News. T-O-N is a manifestation of the bigger concept. The bigger concept is irresponsible broadcasting. That whatever means you have of production and distribution, you should use that. You should exploit those means and get your stuff out there and help shape reality. Because if you don't help shape reality, you know, someone's going to shape it for you. This is an episode from TON called Anatomy of a Punch. Season 3, Issue 13, Anatomy of a Punch. Hello, everybody. This is the Obscure News. T-O-N. Reclaiming Obscurity, minute by minute. The Obscure Headlines. Love hurts. Love hurts. Love hurts. And you got drunk and hit somebody in the face? Yeah. (laughs) First time I ever got drunk, I was really angry at one of my guy friends, and... I punched him in the face and he cried. (laughs) (laughs) No, the boyfriend reported. No black eye. She got me in the jaw, he said, but the damage was all to my heart. Okay, no wonder she hit him. I have been punched in the face. My brother punched me straight in the nose when I was about eight, and he was ten, or somewhere in that range. I remember feeling really startled, more than in pain, but once the blood started flowing, I was pissed. Neither of our parents were home, so somehow, via some crazy suburban neighbor radar or something, my friend Faye's dad came over and dealt with it. My brother really smacked me around quite a lot in those days, which really isn't cool when you think about it. I have never knowingly punched anyone in the face. Beating the shit out of your image. Say what? At one time or another, if you were to meet yourself walking down the street, you might just be in the mood to punch yourself right in the nose. Okay, so there's this artist who just happens to be tall and beautiful, which is important because she had a photo transfer of her own face printed on a heavy bag. A punching bag. She did this so she could punch herself right in the nose, like every day sometimes, for tens of minutes, until she collapses, sweaty and exhausted. 
heavy bag and then just like really going at it. That was like so all about beating up my image. And not even so much me as like this way that I image myself that I really can't stand. What is the way that you image yourself that you really can't stand specifically? Or just noticing this weekend people being connected to their bodies in this way that I absolutely don't identify with so that like I actually feel quite disconnected to my body. And so I think that's because I just like, so there's this disconnect that I don't quite understand. And then beyond that, I like, I kind of fit this really feminine formula that I've created for myself that I just don't really like. And I seem to just continue to do it to please this kind of unknown audience. So I think it's like this femininity. So you be- basically you by beating up on the femme persona of yourself, yeah. you know, sort of the yeah. femme version of yourself, you get to. It's almost like you get to get back at society for for making you have to wear that f- disguise when it's not really you. Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, the thing is, yeah, there's society, blah blah blah, but also like it's this thing that I set up for myself because I'm so aware of all the kind of signifiers that exist in my different communities. Like, it's something I pay so close attention to as far as, like, transcending class or, you know, like, within the queer or straight communities. It's just, like, I'm so constantly aware of all that stuff that it's hard to be like, oh, yeah, and society makes me wear makeup. Like, I I wear makeup. I make myself wear makeup. I just, like, kind of don't want to and kind of can't stop. Because I think I also do, like, enjoy the rewards that it brings me. And that disgusts me, too. But as far as, like, the professional artist part, yeah. I mean, I thought about the idea, the punching bag idea, last spring when I was getting this kind of, like, onslaught of attention, both sexual attention and just about my work. And I was just like, what did I just do, not only to myself, but to all the people who are in the videos with me, in general, like, f*** me for making all this. (laughs) And I just really wanted to, like, beat the shit out of my image. Yeah. And then by the time I actually realized the project, I, like, got the heavy bag installed. It was more like, oh, I can't believe I said this thing today. Or, like, and I was especially excited to, like, punch myself in the face. It became, like, kind of a challenge. I would swing or whatever, but I was still, like, aiming for my nose right there. Pollyanna's Ghetto, the brightest side of the street. The bright side of being punched in the face. If you're really pissed off at yourself, it hurts so good. It can help teach humiliation. It's an excuse to go under the knife and get that nose job you've always wanted covered by insurance. It might knock some sense into you. After someone you know punches you in the face, you really know where you stand with them. It leaves you with an entertaining story to share with friends and family. It gives you an excuse to turn around and beat the crap out of your assailant. Tasting your own blood is warm and salty and somehow reassuring, like smelling your own fart. What doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. Yo, yo, yo! T.O.N. babies, perpetrating obscurity all over the place.
The obscure headlines. Schoolgirl opts not to act. I let someone get punched in the face. Whammo. No, Do it. no, there was this girl that like in fifth grade, I think, that like got picked on a lot. And a girl in my class was like, I'm going to punch her in the face after school as we were going out of the building. And I had to run back in and get something. And the girl that was getting picked on was coming out. And, like, I could have told her to, like, not go out that door. Oh, and you're going And to... I didn't. Oh, and I feel Be- bad. Because you secretly wanted to see her get No, punched. well, because, like, no, I didn't want to. I was scared of the girl that was going to punch her. Like, uh-huh. she's crazy. Yeah, so. Two brothers. Two brothers go into business together. Differences in personality come to the fore. They quarrel and eventually realize that the situation is intolerable. One of the brothers, the youngest, bows out. The older brother purchases his interest. The deal is amicable, and both tell each other that they hope abandoning the partnership will bring them closer together. They have a nostalgic moment together. Shortly after they part ways, the business takes a turn for the better. The younger brother feels as though he was manipulated by his older brother, and bitterness ensues. The spouses encourage the differences and make things worse. There are harsh words at a family gathering at a wedding of a cousin. Things hit a low. Then the elder brother dies. The younger brother inherits the business and ends up feeling empty and alone. Yolanda's Journal. Yolanda's Journal. Entry number 31. Today for school we visited this art gallery that has all this artwork done by Preston Jackson. He is now my favorite artist. His works were filled with so much symbolism. He had a cultural message within his works also, like he had this sculpture of this woman whose dress was made of collard greens. I really liked that. That has so much meaning in the black community. His work really made me think, and it made me want to know more. It was like a high. Not that I'm saying I get high. Only some of his work really made me think too much about violence, like the sculpture about the woman who was a twin, only her old massa took her twin sister away at birth, and then finally, after she was grown, she cut her old massa into two with an axe. Then she said, now you're a separated twin too, which is like point-blank cold. I mean, her old massa totally deserved it, but dag, to go and chop them in half? I don't care who it is or what they've done to slice somebody entirely open like that. That's some sub-zero shit for real. And the woman who made a blanket out of her boyfriend's skin after he got lynched? Now that is just gross. I was so disturbed. Even now, I don't want to think about that. I mean, because Preston Jackson does research and so these stories are true history, it's not something you can say Hollywood made up to scare little kids. I left my name and address on his mailing list so that I could meet Preston Jackson because it was really a great thing for me to see an Afro-American artist, and a good one at that, making a living out of his work. He's a role model for me. 
Now I have more reassurance that I can make it in the world being black and an artist. Be sure to tune in next week when Yolanda becomes completely grossed out. He put it right in his mouth and chewed on that movie floor filthy piece of popcorn for about 10 minutes. Then I just had to leave. The Obscure News, produced by Lloyd Broadnax King. I want you to understand something. This story is my uh, intellectual property. So... You must keep one question burning in the center of your mind. As you listen to my story, you must ask yourself this. How much you owe me? I'm Gwen Maxi. You're listening to ReSound. In the golden age of radio, serialized stories were what radio was all about. The Avengers, The Shadow, Captain Midnight... But by the 50s, with music programming and the television boom, the great old radio dramas started fading away. But we have a podcast to play for you that carries on that tradition, albeit in a most untraditional way. It's part Wizard of Oz, part Dante's Inferno, part absurdist radio theater, and part anti-corporate musical. It gives you a clear window into the imagination of its creator, Matt Sarr, which, as you'll see, is formidable. Here is The Tin Man, episode number three. from fanzucker.com. 925 years later, <laughs> a girl named Dorothy came through the woods and she found me there, still frozen in place. And then she... Lubed me up. She oiled my joint. Friction was no longer my ennui. I said to her, Thank you. And she said to me, I'm going to see the wizard. I thought this was maybe another euphemism for her tricks with the oil can. So I said, No, thank you. I've had enough. But she told me the wizard was a real guy in a green castle who could pull off tricks that fix any problem. I said, can he give me a heart? And she said, maybe. Her optimism was uh, irresistible. So I follow her. Then it was, I noticed, as I fell into a step behind, another figure was walking with us. I looked over my shoulder. It was the scarecrow, 
the same as I had left stuck impaled nine hundred years ago. I did not meet his eyes. We picked up a cowardly lion, and we continued upon the road of golden bricks. Dorothy prattling on without ceasing, nor waiting to see if we listened. She filled the air with a noise like conversation, but lacking sense. Every hour that ticked by, I was still a glance at the scarecrow. I never caught his eye. He pretended to be light-hearted. I marched on. At last, I got buried no longer. I fell into step right next to him, and I said, I can see you are angry with me. The art of believing in something. I practice the art, but there's nothing really to find. Dixie Noble brings you oil. Exxon exists. Exxon exists, and compared to that, not much else is. Not much. Exxon Mobil is. Exxon Mobil is to the power of itself. Base 9, base 76, the spirit multiplied to the power. Not square, but quadratic. Down. Exxon Mobil is the root. Exxon Mobil is root. Exxon Mobil is the root of all the said to him, I can see you are angry with me. Am I? Why? Because I left you stuck up there 900 years ago. Oh, that with you? Yes. I seem to remember something about that, but it all gets so boring like a history book, doesn't it? What? History? Oh, so you are not angry? Why? Because I left you in the lurch 900 years ago. Oh, that was you? Yes. I remember now, but I don't bear you any ill will. I think you said you had a reason. But I didn't. No? No. It was a lie. It was a lie. I'm afraid you'll have to repeat that. It was a lie. I mean very often. Once I hear something, I never remember when it, when it turns out to be a lie. I'm a little bit... A little bit what? Absent-minded. You uh, have a way with understatement. 
That's why I'm going to get a brain. So I can tell right from wrong, and then I'll be able to hold the grudge. Fruit of the tree of knowledge is what Geppetto called it, but I don't know what he was talking about. Pomegranates, I guess. What are you talking about? I don't know. I tell you what, I'm not gonna talk to you no more. Okay. So we continued in silence. The noise of Dorothy's conversation bubbled and popped. Speaking to the lion was useless. He just wanted you to scratch his butt. We walked a long time. The Tin Man, episode number three, by Matt Sarr. To read an interview with Matt, which is as strange and complex as the show he creates, or find a link to the entire 20-part Tin Man series, go to our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. The bigger concept is irresponsible broadcasting. That whatever means that you have of production and distribution, you should use that, you should exploit those means and get your stuff out there and help shape reality, because if you don't help shape reality, you know, someone's going to shape it for you. The symbols 1100-0001 mean the letter A. The symbols 1100-0001-1100-0001-1111-1111-1100-0001 mean the letter B, and so on. The number code, or collection of bits, is recorded with electronic signals, which the computer counts. The part of the computer that does this counting is called the arithmetic logic unit. Our last podcast today originated as a live theater performance by artist and scholar David Terry and sound designer Michael Kraskin. But when Terry moved to Chapel Hill, the collaboration continued long distance. A few years ago, it would have been time and cost prohibitive to create a project like this. But with the technology available now, a few hundred miles between friends is Bupkis. Their podcast is called Catalog of Ships, and it has over 50 offerings. It's not really theater, not really radio, but whatever it is, it sounds good. This episode is called Florida Recount Poker. What can we say about Catalog of Ships? If you would like to contribute story ideas or music to the show, please visit us at www.catalogofships.com. Life cataloged, then remixed.
think it's Kurt Vonnegut, says, you know, you have to live on the West Coast once, but not so long that you get soft, on the East Coast once, but not so long that you get hard. I, I don't know. I really was hoping that Seattle was going to come through for me, but I just couldn't make it stick. And at the time, I just really didn't know what it felt like to really want something. I guess I just spent my whole life adapting to what other people wanted, you know, teachers, parents, the church. And I just didn't really know what it felt like when I wanted something. My dating strategy was generally to find a girl who I knew liked me and then just kind of hang around her. Made things a lot easier if she did all the wanting for both of us. I had some money saved up. I was thinking maybe I would go to India, you know, to find myself. Because, who knows, maybe I was in India. I'd find myself there. But because of an accident I got into with a poster company, I uh, didn't have nearly as much money as I thought. I didn't want to go back to Chicago. I needed some distance from my parents. I thought maybe I would stay in San Francisco, but I just kept freaking out about the decision. And my friends in San Francisco just got really tired of hearing me whine and talk about how I didn't know what I wanted. And finally, one of my friends said, look, we're just not going to put up with this anymore. Just go in the room, think about it for 20 minutes. Whatever you're thinking at the end of 20 minutes, that's what you do. 20 minutes later, she came back in the room, and I had decided to buy a one-way plane ticket to New York City. Two days later, got stoned, walked around the Redwoods, watched a movie, the poorly chosen Wequiem for a dream, and then I caught the red eye. Landed in New York with not much more than the contents of my backpack and about $1,000 in the bank. Borrowed some money for a security deposit. Answered an ad on Craigslist, which was new in New York at the time. Landed in an apartment on Montrose Avenue in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Just happened to be above my friend Michael Kraskin. A complete coincidence. The day of my impromptu move was also the day of the 2000 election. Also complete coincidence. Finding employment proved tougher than I had imagined. I foolishly assumed that employers would read summa cum laude on my resume and start handing me money. If any of them did take the time to read the italicized Latin on the resume, they were not, in fact, impressed, in the least. What interviews I did get, I seemed to find a way to bungle with my absolute uncertainty. I was unable to pretend to be stable, so I guess they couldn't trust me. Can't really blame them. During that time, we played a lot of poker. Mike, our friend Josh, and I. We made up a game called Florida Recount Poker. Sort of like Fall of the Queen for you poker fans out there, except if a red king came up, that meant that the Republicans had won the election and the lowest hand would win, the world having gone to hell. If a black king came up, Democrats were now in office. Al Gore had saved the day, and the highest hand would once again be on top. If a player pulled a blackjack, well then, they were Ralph Nader, and everyone at the table had to give them a chip, matching funds. If a player pulled up a red jack, well, that player was Pat Buchanan, and they had to give everyone a chip for being an asshole. I took a lot of comfort during the days of hanging chads and knowing that my life was in complete limbo, so was the entire country's. I guess we all just couldn't figure out what we wanted. On the day, the exact day, if I'm not mistaken, 
that the Supreme Court decided that George W. Bush would be our next president, I got a phone call from a temp agency telling me they had a job for me, working for Pfizer. A job I held off and on for the next three years until I'd spent enough time in New York City to become hard. Until I had enough days walking down the street, passing thousands and thousands of people, giving me stares, saying, who the f*** are you? What the f*** do you want? And after enough of those stares, I learned how to fake it. I learned how to fake what I wanted until it stuck. The text for Catalog of Ships was written, performed, and recorded by David Terry in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Music, editing, and other production considerations were provided by Michael Kraskin in New York City. If you have ever invented your own poker game, please let us know the rules by writing us at catalogofships at gmail.com or posting them on our blog at www.catalogofships.com. Florida Recount Poker by David Terry and Michael Kraskin from their podcast, Catalog of Ships. For a link to their podcast or to our own excellent, wonderful, exciting, and innovative podcast, check out our website at thirdcoastfestival.org. And suddenly this technology dumps this whole notion of podcasting in, in our laps. And it just seems like, well, you know, it'd be a sin just to go, ah, well, I don't have time to do this or who can deal with that. It, it was like, now you can be NBC, you know, in your own way. <laughs> and uh, it just seemed like a gift from the gods and come back up. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Roman Mars and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our production assistant is Delaney Hall. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else.